This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Luc-Henrique Gomez, a reporter for The Guardian Australia, joined me in the studio to talk about the Senate inquiry into Newstart, which is the job seekers allowance in Australia. Then, Anthony DePiran, a Hong Kong-based lawyer and writer, joined me via Skype to talk about the evolving protests in Hong Kong. Then, finally, Judith Hoare, journalist and author, joined me to talk about her book, The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code, The Extraordinary Life of Dr Claire Weeks. Dr Claire Weeks was an Australian GP who changed the field of psychology and psychiatry, as well as the lives of people suffering from anxiety, for the better. If any of these conversations brought up any questions or concerns for you, please contact your medical practitioner and or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's great to be with you this Tuesday morning. And uh, I have with me in the studio Luke Enrique Gomez, who is here from The Guardian Australia to talk about federal politics, but in particular the Senate inquiry into New Start, uh, which he's been following very closely. And um, as I might have mentioned when we last spoke, he's in a very great position to talk about this area because that is pretty much his exclusive focus apart from, you know, some broader related topics to do with politics. Um, So welcome, Luke. Uh, Thanks for having me on again, Amy. Great to have you back. Thank you for coming in. Um, It's good to be back and lots of important things to talk about today. Yeah, there are. And um, I was pretty... Surprised at times watching your Twitter feed because mm. um, you were, you know, watching the live stream and I, th- I believe you even attended in the Melbourne hearings. Uh, I was in Melbourne for the robo debt hearings, which are happening at the same time as the New Start hearings. So, gosh, it's two those, different hearings. Those social service organisations have been very busy putting in a lot of submissions. I, I hope they're uh, going okay. And yeah, a bit of a break in a few months' time. I feel like it is actually a very intense process um, that people probably aren't aware of. What goes into a Senate inquiry? not just to write a submission but then to give testimony um i had to do it once and i actually loved doing it because it was quite exciting to be asked questions from a whole range of senators and you know push what is um, what you think is most important in a policy area but what has been quite um, interesting in this regard is that we've seen uh, individuals who are on the new start allowance actually testify and talk about their experience um, trying to live on new start which we said um, is the job seekers allowance but it isn't really enough for anyone to find a job um, to live on even mm. whilst they're trying to I guess stabilize their lives and get some kind of financial security or stability back whilst they're either looking for a job or not able to look for a job and are exempted from looking yeah. for a job yeah I mean that's right I mean uh, I guess as you were saying Amy you've um, attended to give evidence at a Senate um, inquiry before but most people listening at home certainly unlikely to be watching them on the parliamentary website. It's <laughs> usually not the most riveting stuff. but Only Senate estimates. Yeah. Well, that's what I watch. It's usually, you know, people who present at inquiries, you know, it's bureaucrats and then people from think tanks and academics and, and lobbyists and those sorts of people. And so to have, as we did last week, um, 10 people who receive New Start. Um, who got up there and um, in Sydney and essentially just spoke about their lives and how difficult it is to live on two hundred and eighty dollars 
um, a week, um, I think it was quite powerful, really. Um, and certainly um, the um, the senators who heard, heard the evidence, um, more particularly, I guess, the um, Green Senator Rachel Seawitt and Labor's Melendiri McCarthy, who support an increase to New Start, it, they did seem, at least, seemed like they were quite moved by what was said. Um, and so, that yeah, that we had 10 people who... Um, talked about the different aspects um, or different factors that can come into why you might um, become a person who's on New Start and then how difficult it is um, to live. I can go through that for you if you like. Yeah. I, I mean, I, so I think the first person who I spoke with, um, uh, her name was, um, well, I ended up speaking with, but she's presented to the inquiry. Her name was Leslie um, and she's been on New Start for about 10 years Um and it's just struggled to find work. Um, it was quite a striking start to the, um, I guess, this part of the hearings because she, the first thing she said was that by attending the hearings, she was breaching her job search obligations. Um, so for people who don't know, if you're on New Start, you likely have to see a job agency who will um, give you a plan of things that you need to do in order to keep your payments. Um, she had a, an appointment that was booked for the Friday when the inquiry was being held. And um, she had said, well, look, I'm going to be presenting at a Senate inquiry to talk about being on Newstart. And um, her provider essentially said, well, if you don't come to your appointment, your payments will be suspended. And um, in the end, we found that that's what happened. Um, And so I thought that was an interesting um, story because um, there is the point about, you know, $40 a day, can you live on it? Mm. Probably not. But... Built into the system as well are the um, added, um, I guess, cruelties really of situations like that where not only are you having to subsist on a very meagre amount of money but also often you don't even have the money that you are entitled to because it's taken away from you because of penalties. Yeah. Um, And so that was the – that sort of kicked things off and set the tone um, in a way. Um, We heard from another older lady um, who was – Um, saying that she was um, in her, I think, late 50s and she was saying that she's taken on a um, a border because she has a mortgage. And um, essentially what she was saying was that um, she... That has been good for her because it means that she has a little bit more money, but um, I I think also part of what she was saying, the implication was that the sort of... She'd lost a bit of dignity, I think, you know, to be um, an older lady and have her own house and have to bring somebody in, essentially a stranger, to live with her. Mm. Um, she talked about, you know, she would hear um, her housemate having a long hot shower and, um, you know, this panic sets in thinking about the bills, but she couldn't really, doesn't really feel like she can say anything. Um, uh, she has a dog who's got a cough and she can't afford to take the dog to the vet. Um she she was saying that she'd recently broken her glasses and so she's wearing an old pair which um, are not strong enough and so driving is dangerous for her. Um, yeah, I think th- those stories of these two ladies in particular are important because they're the... Um, and th- that's the growest, fastest growing cohort of people when you start is people over 55 and, and women. Mm. Um, and so we, we're unsure whether or not um, these personal stories will have an impact in terms of 
the broader public debate, um, in, well, I guess in the sense of where the government looks at this issue, but um, it was um, a really powerful um, hour for sure. Yeah, well, it was powerful to read what mm. was happening. Um, and I was interested also in Mark's comments. He, um, you tweeted, was a former journalist and a writer who's on New Start. Um, and you quoted him as saying, once you get caught up in a system like Centrelink and New Start, you're reminded how much your own background and professional history mean nothing and that you are, because of, because of the way you are treated, nothing. Yeah, it's really harrowing. Um um, Mark um, has worked as a journalist for for some time, and at the moment, I, I understand he's doing. He's managed to get a little bit of um, part time work, um, doing some sort of communications um, um, work for a, a not for profit. But um, that story is again so typical. Um, the people I speak with, they've often got long career histories um, and have fallen out of a job because they've been made redundant or something like that. And um, you go into a job agency and, um, I mean, I'm 27, so um, I'm only putting myself in the shoes of somebody who's older, but what they say is that it can be really um, demoralising to be sitting in front of somebody in their mid or early 20s even because the turnover at these job agencies is is very high. And being told, oh, um, you know, Sure, you may have been a journalist for 30 years. Sure, you may have done this or that or the other, but you're going to have to um, apply for these um, jobs um, that, you know, are just not fulfilling in any way, right? And Mm. you you probably won't get them because you're overqualified anyway, but you have to apply for them because you have to apply for 20 jobs a month. Um, Sort of separately to the inquiry, I was speaking to someone the other day. I didn't end up writing about it, but it was just um, sort of for some background, a person on Newstart, and he was telling me that, yeah, he, he's um, in his um, mid-50s and he was told to apply for a job. Or no, he was referred to a job as a pizza delivery person. Um, and he's, you know, got a, um, a master's degree and um, a fairly extensive work history. And he just said, well, I refused because why should I um, take away the opportunity from somebody who's 17 or 18 to go and do that job? Mm. Right? Um, yeah, it's where you build experience often. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think um, that quote from Mark speaks to um, the emotional impact as well. Um, and um, there's research which shows that um, I reported on some research from Monash University last month, which talks about the fact that amongst people on Newstart, the, the, um, it's nearly half report some sort of um, behavioural or um, mental illness type um, condition. Um, and that's only compounded when you know your sense of um, self, your sense of um, self-esteem, your sense of identity, I suppose, is kind of worn down by being in the system. Mm. And the longer that goes on, I think, the, the worse it gets. Yeah, it seems like it's entirely demoralising to have to go through these very bureaucratic, impersonal, not targeted processes where you're pushed into different um, job applications and requirements to fulfil, you know, doing certain courses. Um, And, yeah, I can't even imagine how it must be. But it also sounds like even if you didn't have uh, issues with your mental health, you probably would end up having issues with your mental health because it seems like it can induce a lot of anxiety 
when you're not sure if you're going to, you know, get a job, apply for enough jobs, perhaps have your um, payments suspended for some unknown reason or some bureaucratic mistake, mm. um, which seems like it's quite common. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, I spoke to somebody for another story a, a while ago who said she'd, I think, applied for 400 jobs. Um to be knocked back that many times is just, I mean, breaks anybody's heart, right, mm. to think about it. And so, uh, and and the, I, re- I reckon that, you know, um, there'll be some academics who, who will look at this, I reckon, in, um, in the next few years because the emotional imp- toll of, of um, sort of the system itself requires you to be rejected, right? Yeah. Because you have to apply for, for the most part, it's 20 jobs a month. And most of the um, most of the data shows that, I mean, you get varying statistics. Some say it's about you know um, seven people applying for um, each job. Sometimes it's five. Sometimes it's more. But the point is that there aren't the jobs that um, are out there. Mm. And particularly as well, um, so Anglicare does a um, um, does research on this, and there's they've got a report coming out later in the week, but. Um, you know, last year, what what happens is, um, just because of the nature of the economy changing, the jobs for people who are disadvantaged are drying up, right? So people who are um, in what's called, well, I mean, there are streams in, in the system, and so the, the lowest stream, right? They need the most help to get a job. Um, the jobs for those people are a much smaller proportion of the overall job market than they were 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and speaking to people, they just say, the jobs that I need are not available and I can't... And, it's, and then you have to try and get the training that you, you need and, and then without even going into that, that can mm. also be very difficult as well. Yeah, exactly. And what is uh, particularly interesting is that there is an assumed level of unemployment in Australia all the time. And it is part of 101 economics Mm -hmm. um, to assume that Australia will have a level of unemployment of around 5% to manage inflation. That really doesn't even encapsulate or capture the reality, which is that um, there are many underemployed people as well yeah and obviously it varies across regions and age brackets absolutely i think so i think it's you know about a million underemployed people about 1.1 million um and so like the research i was talking about there from anglicare doesn't Mm. include those people as considered um competing for those jobs but um that many of them would be right um so and then you take into account as well um the jobs might be there, but are in the are they in the places where um, the people people are in, unemployed? Um, uh, the some data out from the government in its submission to um, the inquiry does show that um, you know re- people in regional areas are um, um, they are overrepresented in terms of the new new start cohort. So mm. um, about thirty three percent of people. Um, who on New Start are in regional areas. They're about twenty six percent of the population. So to, um, I guess, touch on the politics briefly, that's probably why people in the National Party are talking about New Start. That's probably why Barnaby Joyce, in his <laughs> own uh, characteristic way, um, the sort of bumbling way, did uh, enter the debate a couple of months ago mm. um, because they know that the jobs aren't there, 
and the 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 bottom line is if if the jobs are not there then you are forced to live on this payment the government is saying oh well our priority is to get people into work Mm -hmm. which is um a good goal and i think you know that's what government should be doing but if the jobs are not there what what happens in the meantime at the moment the there doesn't seem to be an answer to that question. Yeah. Well, the peak lobbying body for social services, uh, ACOS, have in this inquiry highlighted the language that the government uses around um, working and getting a job and saying that the best form of welfare is a job, which seems quite condescending to anyone who needs to subsist on New Start for a range of reasons because... Um, there are so many reasons why someone can't get a job or aren't able, fit well enough to work at the moment. Yeah. Um, and so to suggest that that's like the main measurement of you being an effective or um, valued citizen because you're not relying on the government for a handout, mm. in inverted commas, um, you know, it's it's kind of, it seems to reinforce the issue that there seems to be this kind of disconnect of what originally Australia envisaged for um, the welfare system and what New Start in its many forms was supposed to be for, mm. which um, is really to enable someone to be uh, financially secure enough to gain employment. Um, and one of the other elements I was interested that came up was around the government not having uh, a, a definition of what the poverty line is in Australia. There wasn't an official definition. Um, could you yeah, guide us through those issues? Um, I guess the first um, point, and there was an, uh, about, um, you know, the best form of welfare is, is a job. Um, there was a um, a bit of a fiery moment between um, the Liberal Senator Holly Hughes, who's a, a new uh, senator, and um, Cassandra Goldie, who's the head of ACOS, about this. Um, Cassandra Goldie was essentially saying, what What do we mean when we say the best form of welfare um, is a job? Um, which I think is a good question to ask because um, it's a platitude, really, right? Mm. It doesn't... Um, and And her sort of what she said said people took from it was that um, it questions do we need a a welfare system at all? Do we need a social security system? Um, Because if it was so simple as everybody having a job, why do we need one, right? That was what she was saying people took from that. And Mm -hmm. Holly Hughes, um, I think, sort of uh, interpreted what Cassandra Goddy was saying as an implication that um, the coalition was somehow planning on... um, (laughs) Uh, you know, um, shutting down the entire welfare system, which I don't think is what Cassandra Goldie was saying, and I don't think anyone's suggesting that that's the. Well, I'm sure there are people who are suggesting <laughs> that, but I, um, most of us are. You're I don't in think, the minority, thank <laughs> God. <laughs> as suggesting that um, the coalition intends to do that. But um, I think, as you were saying, and as Cassandra Goldie was saying, it, it's an important question to ask because um, why. As we were saying before, what does it mean? Like, and mm. um, also, the other thing that I find strange about that comment is that um, welfare, I suppose, as we as we take it, is you know people getting some assistance because they need it, and and, and they need that assistance um, for a period of time. And by giving it to them, it helps them to firstly live a dignified life, which is everyone has the right to, but also to then help them to um, 
you know, become participate in the economy, right? Mm. To help them to get a job and those sorts of things. Um, a, a job is something that you are where you go to work and you are paid for your labor, right? So I don't quite mm. get it anyway. It's, they seem to be. It's a, a strange argument. I don't understand. Is the government saying that people who are in um, in work are receiving welfare? I mean, yeah, I, you're creating your own welfare. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense. It doesn't <laughs> no. at all. Um, so there's that point. And can you just remind me the, the second point? Um, it was around the poverty line and this discussion of should Australia even have a, a official definition or a formal definition of what uh, counts as living below the poverty line? Yeah, so we have a couple of measures that are used at the moment. Um, and there's the Henderson poverty line. Um, and and so most of the reports that are done by um, social ser- service organisations or academics use some sort of, um, I guess, existing markers that we have. Um, but the government itself doesn't recognise a poverty line. And um, that is, I think, in the eyes of social service organisations, welfare groups, a problem because um, if you don't identify the problem and have an agreed definition of what it is, how do you tackle it? Mm. Um, coming from that discussion um, where the Department of social, social Services and the Department of Employment were facing the inquiry was a sort of discussion about, OK, um, if do you accept that the rate of new start is a barrier to people getting into, into work and and do you accept that people who are not in work are going to be more likely to be um, impacted by poverty? Mm. If you don't have an agreed definition of what um, the poverty line is, um, how can you um, tackle those um, issues? And the, both the departments were sort of saying, well, the so Department of Social Services, which administers Newstat, was saying, yeah. oh, it's not our issue because um, we don't run employment programs. So whether or not um, import, um, New Start is a barrier to employment is not really a question for us because that's probably an issue for the Department of Employment. The Department of Employment said uh, that is not really a question for us because um, we don't administer New Start. That's a problem for the Department of Social Services. So, And the Department also did say, the social services, that they haven't been asked to look at the adequacy of New Start in term, by the government at all in mm-hmm. this period of time. So, um, for the entire time that the government has, well, in its many forms, has been yes, in office. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I think, uh, I guess it's kind of what, what, Rachel C. What the Green Senator sort of muttered. Um, that's convenient in <laughs> response to the question about you know why don't we have a poverty line. Um, and I'm sure the critics would say that it, is, it does sort of enable a, a level of um, willful ignorance because if there was a defined poverty line, there would be government reports that could be um, released every um, year where we wouldn't quibble about, oh, well, you know, this poverty line, I mean, that's, is that actually people who are in poverty or is mm. it just uh, sort of relative poverty compared to people on the median incomes, which is sort of what happens at the moment. Um, reports come out and the government says, oh, well, we like to use this other measure. Oh, it's more accurate. Or, uh, yeah. Um, but if there was a marker that we all agreed to, yeah. the discussion would probably be a bit more... Um, uh, uh, I, I don't know, it would just be a, a better discussion, I think, about the issue. Mm, and there's a consistent point to measure from. Yes. 
and to keep measuring against. Exactly. Yeah. I'm interested in what has come up as well around an independent commission that might set a certain rate for New Start. Um, obviously, the coalition is not even interested in reviewing whether New Start is adequate, uh, but others who have said it absolutely needs to be increased think that there needs to be some way of determining what is the most adequate for people who mm. are on New Start. Mm. What are your thoughts on that, and what came up when it, when the discussion did arise around a commission? Um, it's I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I mean, my um, personal view for what it's worth is that I'm a bit, I don't know, I'm, it seems like a great idea and mm. we have, you know, um, obviously politicians' wages are set by the Remuneration Tribunal, um, which allows them to uh, enjoy their pay rises without having to uh, defend them because it's not in their hands. Um, and, uh, you know, the Fair Work Commission sets um, the minimum wage and, and awards and that sort of thing. So, I um, mean, in some ways it makes sense. Um I guess I don't know that whether or not um, d- it depends on who's in, on the commission. Yeah. Right. What the terms of reference are, yeah. how it's set up. But I, I mean, I guess the fact that most so there's broad support for it across welfare groups mm-hmm. and, and other organisations um, suggests that it's certainly an idea that has merit. I, I noted uh, recently that the Labor leader Anthony Albanese also um, said um, last week that. Um, he thought it was an idea that ought to be looked at. Um, I, 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 the government's talking points were um, leaked accidentally. <laughs> yes. uh, well, they were released to journalists in the press gallery. Sent, yeah. Yes, by email, yes. And um, apparently it was Wednesday, not Monday as well. They got the day wrong. The, yes, there were, a few, there were a few issues with the talking points and yeah. we uh, had a fact check on it on our website yesterday. But um, essentially the government clearly has no plans for this. Um, the talking points said that... Um, sort of in criticising Anthony Albanese's sort of openness to the idea was mm. he, he was saying they were saying um, that you know the governments are not selected to, uh, are not uh, elected to uh, outsource big decisions right so they don't view this as a good idea but um, clearly at the moment the the way new studies set and the difference in indexation between the pension, which is indexed to wages, which rises quicker than inflation, which is how mm. new studies increase. That's a political decision which was made by the Howard government, um, you know, in, in the 90s. I think we might have discussed that last time I was on. So what welfare groups say at the moment is, well, these things are entirely um, based on politics and they yes. shouldn't be. They should be based on the evidence. Yes. Well, John Howard was seeking to win over that group, essentially, through a, a range of mechanisms, and that was certainly one of them. Yeah. And so uh, the government argues um, that, you know, the, um, the, the um, CPI is, you know, keeps pace with the cost of living. Um, KPMG, which, you know, the accounting giant, which um, has called for an increase in Newstart, um, had a great line in its submission where it said that, um, you know, if, if the unemployment benefits that existed in um, just after World War II had been indexed just to CPI, mm-hmm. they would be about $90 a week at the moment, right? Because um, CPI is a, is, is a measure of a basket of, of goods, but it doesn't quite capture the changes in the economy that lead to people's, um, you know, that that are the res- therefore the result of New Start not yeah. being, um, you know, adequate. 
Mm. It's interesting you say CPI because I uh, recall and note that a lot of employers still use CPI as a measure of how much they should increase someone's wages as a way of getting out of that sticky situation. Yes, they do. They yeah. do. Yeah, it's a little bit concerning. Um, so I love that you brought up KPMG because it was interesting and then not so surprising to me that they had this line when I thought about it because if you increase new start, you're also increasing um, discretionary spending, which means that big and small business benefit, the economy is stimulated. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why KPMG, from that perspective, might support an increase to Newstart. Um, But I was also interested that um, the person who was representing KPMG said, um, and I'm just quoting from what you reported, Mm. um, that the rate of Newstart is an impediment to people getting a job. Yes. Which just seems like common sense. Um, And they also said that uh, we've adopted a society whereby we don't guarantee people a job. Um, That is okay, he says, but it comes with an obligation and the inference there is that the payment needs to be adequate. Yes. That debate was particularly interesting in the context of Europe, um, which I know came up when the Australia Institute presented, Mm. and this uh, conception of welfare that really has changed, as you've said, in Australia after World War II, it was certainly one very, very different form of payment to Mm. what we are at now. Um, And Andrew Lee has argued it's more efficient, Um, but then others have said, you know, it might be more efficient, but is it effective? Yeah. Um, well, that's right. So, I mean, I guess to pick up the KPMG point, it mm. goes back to what we were saying before about, um, you know, um, we have an implied 5% unemployment rate. That's what essentially is being discussed there is that like, we all, we don't talk about it, but we acknowledge or um, we, we say, well, this is what the unemployment rate needs to be. This is how many people need to be out of work in order for inflation not to um get out of control and in order for our economy to work properly. So um, that's right. In terms of um, uh, the sort of European models, um, I reported on some analysis from Peter Whiteford from ANU um, uh, a couple of months ago, and what he did was, um, while acknowledging the differences in the systems, what um, Peter did was just look at... um, how people, um, you know, who's better off and worse off across the OECD um, if you lose your job. So if you are if you are on um, two-thirds of the um, median wage and you lose your job and you're a single person, um, are you better off being in Australia or the UK or France or Greece or wherever? Mm-hmm. Um, and across various measures, Australia performs very poorly. Um, in, across some measures, if you include housing benefits, Australia is... Um, you know, you you get the lowest payment um, if you're unemployed in Australia compared to uh, all the other OECD countries. What the government says, um, and this is partly what Andrew Lee is going to as well, is that the system is very targeted uh, and that um, you can't be on um, unemployment benefits usually in other those European models for sort of indeterminate amount of time. Eventually, you um, are kicked off it. Whereas in Australia, you can be on new start for as long as you are eligible for it. Um, the other point they make is that um, we fund new start and other um, social services, social security payments through just through general taxes. Whereas in um, these European model countries, um, there are employer contributions. Uh, it's sort of a bit like a superannuation system, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But the point in Europe that they seem to have acknowledged is that people are going to be unemployed in a modern economy. And so, um, therefore, um, people need to have enough money to uh, retrain. Um, people need to have enough money to put food on the table. Um, and I think, for example, in, in Denmark, they have um, actually quite... Um, loose labour laws, right, which sort of sends a shudder down um, for most people, I think, who are, consider themselves progressive in Australia. Mm-hmm. The the flip side of that is that they have really good training programs and they have um, a, a good um, safety net or social insurance is the correct term because that's the, just the, the differentiation the government wants to make between our system being a safety net mm-hmm. and the European countries having social insurance. So... Um, I don't know what the way forward is, but clearly um, the way clearly there are going to be people who are unemployed, and it's probably not enough to just say, "Oh well, um, there's a safety net for them of a very meagre amount." Um, mm. If we acknowledge, as we do, that there are going to be people out of work, um, it's certainly you know as jobs become more casualised, um, the nature of the workforce has changed so much. So. That's and it will worked. continue. Yeah. And the Australian economy will change. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm really, yeah, it's interesting to say that it's a safety net because I think that's quite a generous description. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure people on Newstart wouldn't see it that way. No, um, <laughs> no and it once probably was and yeah. it isn't anymore, right? Because exactly. The cost of living has increased and the payment's been frozen for 25 years essentially in, in real terms. Mm. So. Even the safety net term, I'm sure, is very offensive to a lot of people. Exactly, yeah. Um, Luke, just finally, I know that the um, drug testing issue has also been really con- controversial yes. around expanding it for people who are on New Start, mm-hmm. um, for example. Do you think that might go ahead? Good question. And I am not tapped in en- enough to the um, sort of parliamentary numbers at the moment. From my last... Um, my last glance at it, I think Jackie Lambie um, was saying, having having said that she was open to supporting it as long as all politicians and press gallery members were drug tested, then said actually um, she was not inclined to support it because she didn't think that the um, uh, services, um, the drug treatment services were adequate, which I think all the experts say is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and also worth noting, I suppose, that her son has had um, some... Um, difficulties with um, addiction and so perhaps that informs her um, view Um, and she hasn't seemed like she's wavered from that position um, at all but the um, inquiry report there was an inquiry into this as well which was very quick Um, yeah uh, it is recommended that the bill pass but that's um, because it's a government uh, controlled committee Mm -hmm. uh, or inquiry Um, so hard to know um, basically, you, if you if you want the answer, ring up Jackie Lambie and ask her. <laughs> I might do that. I did actually <laughs> run into Jackie, <laughs> yeah, when I was giving evidence um, in my own very brief period in the Senate. It was quite. She's a very interesting character. Yeah, she is. Um, yeah. So I was interested just to close out this discussion that yeah. St Vincent's Health, which you quote, said that in their statement, um, every major medical and health organisation in Australia opposes this trial, um, as in the drug trial. What does that tell you? Mm. I feel like that kind of says it all. 
Well, that's right. There are no experts that I'm aware of who are on the record who support this. Um, the government's argument is that's why we're doing a trial, <laughs> right? Is, yeah. Um, which is, uh, as I suppose, I, you know, that's a thing that you can put. But um, I- even in terms of the trial itself, um, what we heard during the Senate inquiry into this was that um, it would not receive... Um, uh, it would not be able to uh, exist as a clinical trial in a university because of ethics problems to do with the consent or lack of consent, right? Because if mm. you're told uh, you have to do this drug test now, if you don't, you will not get welfare payments. There's some clear consent issues involved there. And so um, what one of the witnesses said was that um, from um, the uh, College of um, GPs was that... Um, this just will, this trial will not provide any kind of reliable scientific a scientific evidence base at all because it's so flawed mm. right so if they're arguing oh well let's see if it works well then it needs to be designed and I'm not saying that I think it's a good idea but it needs to be designed in a way that would at least um, provide something that can be evaluated um, effectively right? yeah. Yeah, if you're going to make that intellectual argument, yeah, you definitely need that at least to make yeah, it rigorous. Absolutely. Um, Luke, congratulations also on being nominated, have to put this in oh. here, for the Victorian Homelessness Media Awards in the News and Short Deadline category. Thank you're you. You're a finalist and it's fantastic to see your work getting recognised um, because I know that I'm not the only person who thinks that you're doing a great job um, and I'm sure that many people who don't have a voice appreciate you highlighting these issues for them. That's um, very kind. I think I'm just lucky that um, I have the, the ability to write about these things and also, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to write anything unless um, people were able, like people on welfare were willing to talk to me um, mm. and I'm always amazed that and blown away that they do have the courage to do that. So yep. um, I guess that's all I would say about that. Yeah, <laughs> probably the most courageous people in our society essentially. So. Yeah. Yep. Thank you so much, Luke, for coming in to talk with us today and it was really, really wonderful to have your insights. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Luke Enrique Gomez, who is a reporter at The Guardian Australia. You can follow him on Twitter at Luke H. Gomez and uh, see even more of his reporting on this issue and other related matters. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins and I'm with you up until noon every Tuesday morning. And joining me now essentially is the wonderful Anthony Dapperin. He is based in Hong Kong. He uh, is professionally a lawyer and he's also a writer and an author. He authored um, his first book, City of Protest, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And it Uh, looks at the history of protest in Hong Kong, and it certainly does have a long history. Um, And he's also just announced he will be writing another book, which is very, very, very exciting. Um, And I'm sure he's very well placed to do so, given he's been tweeting um, and following this issue very closely and providing expert insight into it um, direct from Hong Kong. So I welcome Anthony now. Hi there. Hi, good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm good. How are you doing? 
Yeah, very well. Thank you. That's good. I'm so glad you could join us again. Um, I feel like a lot has changed since we last spoke. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest thing since we last spoke is who would have imagined that it would still be going on mm. all these months later. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just been remarkable. Um, this protest movement has continued to grow and, and develop and, and develop, I guess, in some unpleasant ways as well, in the ways that it's gotten more violent, um, but still no clear end in sight. Indeed. And when I was talking about this issue and what we really saw as the demands of the protesters at the beginning, um, as you are well aware, it was around an extradition bill that uh, was very controversial, that the government would not withdraw. They were refusing to withdraw it from the um, parliamentary proceedings and lineup. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, it took months to actually get them to formally withdraw it, um, which, mm. you know, is kind of shocking, really. I, I often, when I I'm reflecting on this wonder what would have happened if, say, um, it had been withdrawn early and Carrie Lam had stepped down. Oh, yeah, I think we certainly wouldn't find ourselves in, in the position we are now. I think back to that first big protest march we had of, of one million people back at, on the, the 9th of June. So it was just over four months ago now. And if after that first march, she'd just come out and said, OK, I, I see that you know, there's some community concerns about this. Um, we won't push ahead with it now. Let's take a pause and, and, and go back to the drawing board. Um, I, I really think the last four months just wouldn't have happened at all the way that they have. But instead, on the, that night, after the, the million-person march, the, the government came out and said, basically, great to see everyone expressing their freedom of assembly. Um, we're going to go ahead as planned. And that's really what sparked all the protests that followed. Um, so after many months, you're, you're right, she did finally agree to to withdraw that extradition bill. It was only a couple of weeks ago that she announced that she would formally do that. But in the meantime, the, the events of the months of protests have given rise to a number of new demands. Um, and as well, that the, the movement has morphed from a movement about the extradition bill to a much broader pro-democracy, anti-government movement. Yes, it seems far more stark in terms of the messages and um, certainly you receiving that in the chants that are um, being used. I mean, I've seen some that are fight for freedom, fight for Hong Kong, but I believe they um, have taken things quite far in talking about it as, as a resistance movement. Yes, that's right. So I guess the the initial way that the protest transitioned was from focused on the extradition bill to focused on some of the, the, the behaviour of the police mm. in policing the extradition bill. So we've had demands for an independent inquiry into the police behaviour and demands related to um, amnesty for arrested protesters and that, and that protesters wouldn't be charged with rioting. Um, and then the movement morphed into demands for universal suffrage for election of the chief executive, which was sort of the, the unfinished business of the umbrella movement protests of five years ago, and they, they were unsuccessful, and so that's sort of reviving their those demands. But then, as you say, the, the, the slogans are moving now into quite stark anti-government and anti-Beijing slogans. So uh, starting around the, the time of China's National Day on the 1st of October, and, and people may have seen from the news that, that China celebrated their 70th, and 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic with a very large military parade in Beijing on the 1st of October. Well, in, in Hong Kong, the protesters were very keen to see that, that that celebration was marked in a different way. And so they had a very large protest march here on that day. But as, as sort of around that time, the slogan started to take on a very 
anti-Beijing feel to them. And so you'd see slogans and graffiti like, uh, you know, destroy the Communist Party or down with the Communist Party um, and slogans along those lines. And then last week, um, Harry Lamb, the chief executive, in, in an attempt to sort of uh, stop the protests gathering steam or trying to short-circuit things, introduced a ban on face masks. Now, people, the protesters had been wearing face masks uh, for two reasons. One, to, to cover their identity because they're worried about facial recognition cameras and, and, and mainland Chinese you know, facial recognition tech and, and being identified for arrest and being identified for perhaps personal appraisal appraisals in their in their business business lives and so on so they were wearing masks just to hide their identities but also of course they were wearing masks to protect themselves from tear gas um you know the police fire tear gas very regularly to try and disperse the crowds and and so everyone's taken to wearing gas masks to protect themselves so the government thought if they banned face masks they might stop people coming out to protest but it, it didn't work out that way um it really just sparked widespread anger. And, and the really notable thing was from the day that the Facebook, the face mask um, ban was announced, uh, the slogan went from being a traditional one of, of Hong Kong and Gaio, which is sort of go Hong Kongers, to Hong Kong and Fang Kong, which is Hong Kongers rebel or Hong Kongers resist. Um, and people were, I think, very unhappy with the government introducing this face mask ban. Now, one of the reasons why they were unhappy is that the government didn't, do it with the, the sort of the traditional legislative process. Instead, the government made use of these emergency powers, which they've had sort of since the colonial era. And it's a, it's a very um, wide ranging draconian law that basically allows the government to make whatever laws it likes sort of off, off the cuff without needing to go through the legislature. So the government made use of these emergency powers to introduce this face masking ban completely bypassing the legislature. And that really seems to have sparked off more anger from the protesters and, and, and yeah, pushing these um, these slogans into more rebellious territory. Indeed. And have there been other elements of those emergency powers being invoked? So there haven't been explicitly. And the government's been talking about um, the different kind of things they could do. Um, and the emergency powers, you do let them do really anything they want. And, and two of the things that they've openly speculated about is... Um, introducing a curfew and also censoring the internet in some way. Um, so on, on the first one, they, they did something quite clever, but they didn't explicitly announce a curfew. And then when you think about, you know, kind of the, the impact that that would have in, in a global city like Hong Kong to suddenly say, we're going to put the city under curfew would, would be a pretty drastic step, um, would be a drastic step in any city and, and would lead to pretty widespread repercussions in terms of reputation and, and sort of the public reaction. But they did a, a pretty tricky thing, which is the next best thing. Instead of formally putting the city under curfew, they shut down the subway system. They shut down the MTR. Now, the MTR is is, the, is owned by the government, so 75% controlled by the government. Um, and it's been the target of, of vandalism by protesters because um, uh, from starting from a couple of months ago, the MTR started shutting down their services to stop people being able to get to protests. Um, and there have been a few incidents where they've allowed police into the stations and the police have carried out various violent actions against protesters and passengers inside the stations. And so protesters have come to feel that the MTR is kind of a, a, a government collaborator. It's, it's, it's one of the, the enemies of the protesters. And so the protesters have been quite actively vandalising um, MTR stations. Um, now, we, I guess we can talk separately about you know, whether that's a good strategy or not, but it's certainly been something that the protesters 
have been doing. And so the government said, you know, the same time last week that they introduced this masking ban, and they said we're also going to have to shut down the MTR because it's been so extensively vandalised, we need time to fix it. Now, now, certainly some stations were pretty badly vandalised, but, but not not all of them, and it wouldn't seem that there were enough that would need shutting down the whole subway network, but that's what they did. Um, and that was a pretty clever strategy because in a city like Hong Kong, where it's fairly geographically spread out, we've got you know Victoria Harbour in the middle and Hong Kong Island on one side and Kowloon on the other. Um, everyone really relies on the subway station to get around, including as part of their daily lives and including, of course, to get to protests. Um, and so they shut down the NTR for the whole weekend. Um, and it was a long weekend. This is two weekends ago now in, in Hong Kong at the time. Um, and so that was sort of the first step they took. And, and then secondly, the, the relationship between the Hong Kong government and the real estate tycoons who, who run Hong Kong are sort of is famously close. Um, and the real estate tycoons, along with the NTR, control many of Hong Kong's shopping malls. And shopping malls um, have a really kind of unique role to play in, in Hong Kong life. And of course, you know, we, all, we all know and love a good shopping mall. But in Hong Kong, um, you know, firstly, the, the, the climate much of the year is really hot and humid. And so a shopping mall is a large air-conditioned space that's comfortable to hang out in. But also um, a lot of uh, people live in apartment de developments that are attached to shopping malls um, and people's own apartments are, are pretty small in Hong Kong. It's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a famously space constrained city. So if people socialize on weekends, one of the most common things they do is they go to shopping malls and they go to restaurants there and, and sort of meet friends and, and, and entertain there. And, and of course, as well as shopping and all the other things. So, so shopping malls have a really vital role in the life of the city um and so what they did is the tycoons and the mtr for that weekend that they shut down the mtr they also announced they were going to shut down the shopping malls um and following that they also shut down most of the supermarkets in the city and, and then many other retailers followed suit so essentially the whole city shut down for the weekend um now it's not clear whether the government sort of explicitly gave an order to the tycoons to, to tell them to shut things down or um this was just something they did. They said they did it to facilitate you know, their employees you know, or their employees couldn't easily get to work without the MTR operating and they were maybe a bit worried that there'd be violent protests in response to this masking ban. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, the, the city suddenly felt like it was it was under shutdown and there was a bit of a panic actually. Um, when people learned that the supermarkets would be closing and the MTR would be closing, people rushed into the supermarkets. There were sort of queues all the way out the supermarkets, you know, down the streets and um, supermarket shelves were empty of food um the the atms all ran out of cash it was it was sort of like the feeling that we have in the city when a one of those large typhoons that we get in the summer was approaching um notwithstanding it was a, it was a you know, great weather um but yeah the, the 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 city basically panicked um you know you know emptied the supermarkets and then stayed home and, and so that weekend um it was like the city was under curfew even though you know, a curfew hadn't actually occurred. And what that meant was, of course, that less people came out to protest. Um, and then for all of last week, the, the NTR curfew has continued. So they've been shutting down the NTR early in the night, um, around 8 p.m. most most nights, so that people would sort of finish work and then and then jump on the NTR and rush home and not come out to protest again. Um, and, and so that's what the government did. So without sort of explicitly using their emergency powers, using very cleverly their control of the MTR and, and their close relationship with, with the tycoons to, to effectively shut the city down and try to stop people coming out to protest and perhaps try to sort of short circuit this 
this weekly cycle of protests that we've been seeing here. Mm. How effective do you think that these emergency powers and the use of them um, in the overt and covert <coughs> ways um, have been effective? Because a lot of people said that um, banning face masks would be very hard to enforce. What do you think has been um, the repercussions or the effect of them? Yeah, look, certainly the face mask ban hasn't been effective and, and at every protest, including the big protests, uh, they weren't that big, but the protests that did occur that the weekend the face ban mask was announced, everyone was wearing face masks. And in fact, I went down to the biggest protest that weekend and um, you know, the, I, I wasn't wearing a face mask. Um, there, there are exemptions in there for people wearing face masks for religious reasons, for health reasons or for professional reasons. Um and so people sort of had assumed that that, that might cover journalists. But mm. um, if, you're, if you're a freelance journalist, then you don't have sort of a, an official employment affiliation. So there's sort of a question whether the, 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 the exemption would apply to me or not as a freelancer. So I went down to the protest site and all the sort of professionally employed journalists were wearing face masks. All the protesters were wearing face masks anyway. I was the only one <laughs> not wearing one. And then when the police started firing tear gas, I just thought, well, you know, Screw this, I'm not going to stand around and be the only one getting tear gas, so I put my face mask on as well. Um, but, yeah, so people have continued to defy that ban. Um, but I did I, I did have the feeling that um, you know, perhaps the, the curfew in particular was really effective. And, and for most of the last week you know, and over the, the weekends that we've just had, the protests were very small and, and very isolated to the respective districts. So people didn't convene in one big place for a big protest march. They were sort of doing smaller protest actions um, you know, skirmishes with police in, in local districts, but nothing major. And I was sort of wondering, is, is, has this been effective in really taking the steam out of things? Um, but then last night, um, there was another very big protest march in, in Central. Um, so this week, the, the US Congress is due to consider the, this new Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act in, in, in Washington, D.C. And so last night, protesters called for a rally um, to you know, support the U.S. passing that act and, and to draw attention. And I think the aim was to, to draw the attention of the U.S. media to, to sort of get them to show that Hong Kong has wanted this act to be passed. And it turned out to be a really huge rally. It was down in, in, in the central business district um, after work and it seemed like most people sort of came down from their offices and joined this protest rally. Um, the organisers said there were over 100,000 there. I'm, I'm not sure we got quite that high, but certainly there were there were definitely tens of thousands. All the streets of Central were, were full of protesters. Um, it was a really positive atmosphere. There was there was no real violence last night. Um, but the other thing to note is that pretty much everyone was wearing a face mask. Um, so this is a law that's being really just, just blatantly defied by by the population. Um, but, and also last night's protest showed that, that people are still really angry and still willing to come out. So um. So it, it was it was surprising that after a relatively quiet week or so, um, you know, the, the people were out again last night. Indeed. And you um, talk there about this global reach that this protest really has and the effects mm. that it's having. And um, I was uh, very surprised to find out that it's caused a huge amount of controversy in the gaming world of all places. Um, mm. Thankfully, I know people who know gaming because I've got absolutely no clue. Um, but I was surprised that, you know, it's touching areas of technology. It's touching Apple and Google and their um, use of certain 
apps um, which they've withdrawn, which were involved, mm. which protests were, protesters were using um, to engage in protest and to avoid police. Um, and, and even in the gaming world, you know, a, a person said something about Hong Kong um, and then, you know, their prize money was taken away and they were banned for a year from the game and they've since, mm. you know, kind of backtracked a little bit from that position. But there's this huge amount of tension that seems to be arising um, whereby people are afraid to um, voice an opinion for fear of a type of backlash against them um, on either side. And it, it seems to be across all, many countries. Yeah, I think the, the, the last week has been really noticeable just because a couple of those incidents all happened at the same time. As you pointed out, we had the, the Blizzard Gaming mm. incident where yeah, a Hong Kong gamer called out a, a protest slogan during the live stream and, and resulted in him being um, banned by Blizzard, who then sort of sub- subsequently walked that back a bit. We had um, the, the general manager of the Houston Rocket send out a tweet about uh, a tweet supporting the protesters. It's, I think it said, uh, you know, stand with Hong Kong, um, causing a, a big uh, uh, sort of controversy about the NBA, the NBA in China. And as a, as a result, China threatened to effectively ban the entire NBA in China. Um, and then we had uh, you know, Apple who uh, withdrew from the App Store, uh, an app that had been created by some Hong Kongers to help them track where police were on the ground during during protests, because Apple said it was a, an app for an illegal purpose. Um, all of these things sort of showing, as you say, that you know people have been uh, you know, self-censoring for fear of offending China and affecting their business interests in China. But what was being really interesting about the last week is that all of these incidents have prompted a really strong pushback. Um, and it, it seems to me that, you know, in a way, China's very strong reaction to people's criticism of, of, of China or people speaking out on issues in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere in China um, seems to be attracting attention and, and sort of attracting um, people or causing people to sort of rethink you know, China's influence on, on you know, freedom of speech in the West or China's influence on Western businesses and for people to push back on that. So the NBA initially initially apologized and then um, uh, sort of were criticized by the press in the US and by Congress in the US um, uh, and then sort of changed their line. And, and the NBA commissioner came out and said, you know, actually, we support free speech. We appreciate that different countries have different ideas of what that may mean, but we're not going to police what our players or, or managers or coaches have to say. Um and similarly, Blizzard came under huge criticism from the gaming community. People apparently were trying to delete their accounts in protest, and so Blizzard changed their tune as well. So it might be interesting to see, as this continues, whether you know, the Hong Kong protests have the effect, um, you know, rather perversely, of, of, of undermining Beijing's interests in the world by um, you know, encouraging people to sort of speak out more than they might have done previously. Indeed, yeah, I think it was um, for for those not in the gaming world, they may not realise just how controversial it was, but it was uh, quite massive that even um, I think one of the co-founders of World of Warcraft uh, deleted their account, which is kind of a big deal in the gaming world. So, yeah, it, mm. it seemed like it it had some really big repercussions, and it certainly led to a number of people withdrawing their monetary subscriptions and and support from certain games and companies, gaming companies. Mm. Um, mm. 
let's get on to some of the other elements of this. I'm particularly interested in um, the role that identity is playing in the protests on the ground, particularly mm. between, um, I'm not even going to talk about the police yet, but I'm just interested in those who are uh, Mandarin speaking and perhaps mm. um more pro-Beijing and from potentially mainland China who are working or living or uh, visiting Hong Kong versus those uh, from Hong Kong who perhaps don't um, utilise Mandarin as their main um, mode of communication. I've noticed that there's been a lot of um, violence in kind of individual skirmishes that have been occurring around and between those two groups. Yes, that's right. And I think there's an important bit of background to, to, to this, just to understand where that is coming from. Mm. Um, you know, if, you, if you go back to, and I think we talked about this briefly last time we spoke, but if you go back to Hong Kong you know, in the handover, you know, around the time of the handover 20 years ago, um, Hong Kong's economy was, was, was really strong and a significant part of the Chinese economy. And, and the way that Hong Kong sort of distinguished itself from mainland China was that it was, it was rich and developed and mainland China wasn't. Um, but things have changed a lot over the last 20 years and everyone has seen uh, you know, China get uh, wealthier and much more developed and more advanced. And, and at the same time, the Hong Kong economy has, has stagnated a bit, but also become much more reliant on mainland China. And so these days, you know, mainland Chinese businesses, mainland Chinese tourists and, and visitors are, are really vital to the Hong Kong economy and so have become much more influential in Hong Kong. And, and also as a result, the, the traditional expat class you might have seen in Hong Kong, sort of, you know, sort of Western foreigners, um, it, it has now switched. And the, the I guess the so-called expat class in Hong Kong these days is mostly people from the mainland, um, mainland Chinese professionals, you know, accountants, lawyers, bankers, uh, people working in businesses who now come to Hong Kong and work for mainland Chinese companies. Um, and so th- there is now a significant portion of the population here who are those people who speak Mandarin from, from the mainland living and working here. Um, and, and so that has, has caused some friction with the local Hong Kong community. The large number of mainland visitors coming into Hong Kong has also caused some friction. So many people visit from the mainland, obviously, as tourists, but, and that's, that's not a concern. But the local community are concerned with um, people coming from the mainland to engage in, in parallel trading, to buy large amounts of, of goods, which they then take back across the border for resale in mainland China. And that leads to some local shopping areas basically becoming wholesale markets for for sort of pharmacies and food goods and and those things for parallel traders and sort of changes the landscape of the retail economy for local communities and leads to those local communities being overwhelmed by by day traders coming across to buy goods and and take them back across the border. And also the pressure on things like the health system and the education system for people visiting from from the mainland. And, And so this caused some... Some, some some tensions in the community generally are between the, the local Cantonese-speaking Hong Kongers and, and, and Mandarin's, Mandarin-speaking visitors from the mainland. Now, on top of that background, you have, of course, the political tensions. Um, you know, these protests you know, at their essence are about Beijing's influence in Hong Kong and the way Beijing governs Hong Kong. Um, and as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, around National Day last week in particular, there were these you know, anti-communist party slogans starting to emerge and the protests really took on a strong turn. So along with that, there has been um, uh, uh, both an unfortunate turn towards some violent incidents where where people, Mandarin speakers, often um, have uh, come into conflict with the crowds. Um, 
And there's also been widespread vandalism of, of mainland China-affiliated businesses. So, for example, um, during the protests on, on National Day, um, many branches of the mainland-owned Chinese banks were, were extensively vandalized by protesters um, and, and other mainland Chinese businesses, such as the, the, the China Tourism um, Company, also had its, its premises vandalized. Um, now, that, th these are, I think, you know, really regrettable incidents. I, I think everyone deplores the violence and in particular deplores the violence when, when people come into physical conflict with one another. Um, and that really does cause the protesters to, to lose sympathy and support, um, you know, both among the local community and I'm sure among the international community too, seeing these things reported in the media. It, it's not, it, it's a very ugly, um, an ugly sort of nationalist xenophobic strain that, that comes out. Um, but what's also been interesting is the way that this sort of national identity issue has been feeding into the protests themselves. Um, and I, I sort of start to wonder whether the protests are moving you know, from a, a phase of, so we had the anti-extradition law phase and they've moved through the pro-democracy, anti-government phase. And it, there's sort of a path forward where they start to move into a more nationalist, you know, almost pro-independence phase. And one of the really striking things that, that shows the way that it's moving in that direction is that um, a couple of months ago, someone composed a, a, a song, which is effectively a, a national anthem for Hong Kong. It's called Glory to Hong Kong. It's, it sounds like a national anthem. It's got it sort of played by a marching band and, you know, sort of at, at the, you know, sort of that marching band pace song like a national anthem. And it has very sort of sober, inspiring lyrics. Um, it was written just by a, a local Hong Kong guy. He sort of posted it up on an online forum. People on the online forum sort of workshop the lyrics back and forth and sort of settled on a, an agreed text of the lyrics and then distribute it with a, with, a, with a YouTube video. And and within a week or two, it seemed like the whole city had learned this song. Um, and now they sing it at, at, at protest rallies. And I've got to say, it's a really remarkable and striking sight when this song starts to be played and a, a crowd of thousands um, get ready to sing it. They sing it like a national anthem. They they sort of stand to attention. They often put their hands on their hearts. Um, everyone knows the words. And bear in mind, this is something that you know it was only written a month or two ago. And you try and find a, a, you know ten thousand Australians who know all the words to the national anthem. I think you might might you might have, to have a challenge. Um, but um, and they they know and they sing it really solemnly. And it's actually a very moving experience to witness. But it's something that is just there's something going on there um and it, it's done in a way that you know i think you'd struggle to see them singing the the official chinese national anthem with that degree of of of, of passion and and solemnity and, and ardor so i i really wonder you know when you think about the the anti-china rhetoric you know this sort of growing sense of, of a hong kong identity and, and almost a hong kong national identity that's going in, in directions that, that that beijing you know clearly doesn't want things to go you know, beijing has said one of the red lines that must never be crossed is is you know the, the sovereignty of the prc and 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 you know, china's rule over hong kong and when you see protesters sort of pushing sentiments in that direction you really do wonder you know that's extremely provocative to Beijing, and you do wonder, you know, if that keeps going, you know, what that might provoke Beijing into doing in terms of a reaction. Yeah, indeed, and it's interesting that you write, you um, raise the the idea of nationalism, and I think that that perhaps might be a reason why. Um, individuals who are either expats from mainland China or reside in mainland China um, might be pushing back or feeling quite um, angry 
about the actions of those people in Hong Kong wanting to be distinct or separate and identifying themselves as different because um, a number of people who would identify as Chinese believe that they're all Chinese um, and that's mm. that's their view. And so to see this kind of thrown back in their face from the Hong Kong perspective, um, you know, seems to be a reason, a key reason why that tension um, is kind of bubbling and rising up um, on both sides. Sides. It, to me, it seems like there's almost a bit of a loss of face for some people um, mm. who are from mainland China who think that uh, or thought that they were all part of, you know, the same country, even though there was a, a, a two-system arrangement um, in the medium term. What are your thoughts in terms of the the feeling on the ground around um, that and that how um, nationalism is interplaying with identity um, and, you know, playing off the ten- and creating tension between the two sides? Yeah, no, that's they're all very deceptive comments, and I yeah I agree entirely. It's um it, it, it certainly caused that the protesters to lose any sympathies they might have had with people across the border in mainland China. Now, I guess from Beijing's point of view, that's a that's a great thing because one of the Beijing's concerns would have been would have been would have been the risk of contagion from um from mainland. China. China, you know, from from Hong Kong to, to to mainland China, so I think they're going to be very happy that uh, you know there's no risk of people in the mainland sort of protesting in sympathy with Hong Kong. Um, but um, yeah, so, but but certainly it's caused a, a, a very strong pushback from 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 people living here who are from the mainland and um, and from people in the mainland who would have been coming here to to visit or to do business. Um, the, the the number of visitors from the mainland to Hong Kong has plummeted. Um, and really affected, you know, in particular, the tourism and, and hospitality businesses here. And but just also more generally, I think mainlanders are thinking of Hong Kong as a less welcoming place to to, to visit and to do business. Um, and it is causing you know, conflicts in, in the community as well. So um, it, it's it's not uh, in many ways it's not a a positive direction for for this protest movement to go in terms of. The community relationship, um, in terms of uh, you know its support from from the wider world. I think while the wider world is, is very keen to lend you know moral support to a, a pro democracy movement, if that moves into a, a xenophobic nationalist movement, that's not going to be something that continues to command the sympathies of of the world looking on. Um, and, and, and so I think it's it's not you know very uh, constructive direction for things to go. But I think we do have to take a step back and ask how it's reached this point and, and mm. it's been because you know the, the government has been so unresponsive um the government's you know disappeared from public view essentially um and, and not come up with any policies or any really ways of addressing the grievances of the protesters and so it's things have just continued to boil and and to fester and to reach this point and they're going to continue i, I fear getting worse unless the government does something to address the the underlying grievances that, that are bringing people out onto the streets indeed i think they missed the crisis 101 um course for governments because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've done the opposite of what you would usually do i think um yeah. just finally anthony the police have been very controversial and as you said mm. in in the medium, I guess, point of these protests, um, it was a very central point that people wanted oversight of the police. They wanted an inquiry that was independent into the police. And now we've seen escalating use of violence and force from the police. Um, mm. What is the viewpoint in terms of um, not just the protesters' views of the police, but the wider um, society of Hong Kong and whether they are um, trusted from the majority of citizens? 
Yeah, I mean, that's been, I think, one of the, the, the potentially the most devastating um, impacts of this of these last few months on on Hong Kong in the long term is just the way that community trust in the police has been so undermined and so damaged. Um, you know, there's been a number of these controversial incidents with police being overly violent, um, you know, very aggressive, coercive policing, um, you know, innocent passers-by being swept up in, in arrests or tear gas or, or being beaten by batons and these sorts of things. And, and also a sense that the police are not being fair in the way they police the community. So a sense that, you know, people affiliated with pro-Beijing groups or with, with triad groups who attack the protesters um, are not arrested and not charged and, and the police don't target them, they only target the protesters. And when you have a, a sense in the community that the police are no longer policing everyone even handedly, but, uh, you know, a, a sort of picking sides, that's obviously a very damaging direction for, for things to go. Um, and so that 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 undermining of public trust has been has been pretty comprehensive. Um, and it's led to, um, you know, reaching a point where, you know, out in the community, it's sort of considered fair game now for people just to hurl abuse at police as they go past. And we've had incidents, you know, over the last several weeks and months of lo local communities sort of coming out, you know, <laughs> around their local police stations and standing around and sort of hurling abuse at the police and even, you know, throwing rocks at the police stations. Um, whenever police gather to try and disperse a protest, um, you have more people gathering around telling them to go away and that, you know, things are, are are fine until they turn up and when they turn up things get violent and ugly um and this is not just protesters this is often you'll see scenes of people you know coming downstairs from their apartments with old old ladies in slippers and and you know kind of blokes with 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 their with their with their singlets on sort of coming down from watching tv to to, to hurl invective at the police and but that's it's, it's really not a healthy place for a society to be when when people you know distrust their police force so much i mean you know, say what you like about the police they are needed and a community mm. needs a police force to function and it's reached the point where some of the protesters are, in fact, demanding that the Hong Kong police force be disbanded. Um, now, they don't mean that literally, as in, you know, there should be no police, but a, a, a complete sort of disbanding and then reforming of the police force or a reforming in the way that um, occurred with, with, with the Belfast police in, in Northern Ireland after, the, after the, 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 the troubles were resolved there. So it's, it's really, um, it's, it's been a huge problem for the community. Um, but also it's been, interestingly, an opportunity for Beijing that they have leapt upon. Um, so there was a very notable incident um, a, a month or two ago where, uh, again, there was a police station under siege, the police burst out to try and disperse the protesters. And one of the police officers, a notably bald-headed, you know, shaven-headed officer, pulled a, a shotgun on the crowd and, and sort of pointed it at the crowd. And now they said afterwards that that shotgun had beanbag rounds in it, not not live ammo. But seeing a, a, a police officer wielding a rifle of an unarmed crowd of protesters is a pretty striking image. Um, now, everyone in Hong Kong decried that, but that officer on in the mainland became a hero because he was sort of a police officer standing up to these anti-China rioters. And he was invited um, as a special guest of, of the mainland government to Beijing for National Day to take part and to, to watch the parade and, and, and to sort of take part in the National Day celebration. And he's since opened a, uh, a social media account on Weibo, the, the, the mainland style Twitter. He's attracted millions of followers and he's become something of a, of a celebrity in the mainland. And it's just, I think, an example of how um, Beijing has co-opted the Hong Kong police force. And, and I think for, for, the, for the police here who, who feel you know, under siege and, and abused by their own community, if they suddenly feel, well, I've got you know, friends across the border – 
um, I think it's only a natural human reaction to, to sort of then lend your loyalties in the direction of, of, of where you're getting where you're getting the love from, frankly. So mm. um, it, what all this might lead to is, is the Hong Kong police being um, much more tightly aligned with Beijing and, and much more playing the role of Beijing's enforcers in Hong Kong rather than Hong Kong's local community police force, which is another potentially um, unhealthy long term impact of, of all of all of this. Yeah, it seems like we are reaching an impasse and things can only escalate so much before there's a, mm. a massive kind of cataclysmic event. Yeah, and look, I think obviously we all hope it doesn't come to that. Mm. Um, and there, there, there is sort of one way out, which is uh, we have coming up at the end of November um, local council elections here. Now, you know, I know, you know it, it, in in Melbourne, local councils aren't something that we all get very excited no. about. But um, <laughs> here, here the local councils um, they're pretty involved in sort of the day to day life of, of of people you know living in their communities. But also, very importantly, the local councillors then have seats on the election committee um, that choose the chief executive. Mm. So it's actually um, a pretty important election. And so people are hoping that um, obviously the the, the pro-democracy candidates will be successful in in those elections, which are coming up at the end of November. And if they are, you can sort of see a way out where you know, all this protesting becomes election campaigning over the next two months. And if that ends in, in, in big victories for the, pro, for the pro-democracy parties, that people could sort of see this as a bit of a victory and a bit of an outcome for the months of effort that they've expended on the streets. So mm. you know, that, that's perhaps one way that things might reach a, a something of a conclusion that, that, that is not um, cataclysmic um, because, yeah, the other options are, 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 would be unfortunate for everyone. Yeah, I don't think anyone really wants that other option to occur. So No. <laughs> It's not in anyone's interest. Um, Anthony, congratulations on the fact that you are writing another book. Um, Thank you. It's so wonderful to see and I can't wait to read it um, when it does eventually come out next year. And thank um, you you also very much for your time and your really wonderful insights on the ground over there in Hong Kong, which I'm sure is quite stressful at times. So, um, yeah, I appreciate everything you're doing over there. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you again. And yeah, look forward to speaking again soon. That would be great. Thank you, Anthony. Okay, thanks. I've been speaking with Anthony Dapperin, who is a lawyer and an author. He has written a book previously on protest in Hong Kong called City of Protest. And he is writing uh, a new book, which I'm sure will have many iterations given how quickly things change. Um, but it will be called City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong and Scribe will be publishing it. So you can look out for that next year. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You are tuned in to 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The show is Uncommon Sense and it's great to be with you on this Tuesday morning as usual between 9 a.m. and noon. And uh, I'm really delighted that I have a special guest who's on the show today and her name is Judith Hoare. And Judith um, has done a fantastic job of writing about a really fantastic figure of history that we really have forgotten um, and that is 
beyond disappointing to me. Not that surprising, I've got to say, having worked in uh, history and women's history and women in leadership myself for a number of years, it seems to happen all too often. And it's great to see that Judith is correcting things and uh, making the broader community aware of the great work of Dr. Claire Weeks, because a number of people um, in the medical profession and in psychology and also those who have themselves um, dealt with issues around anxiety and anxiety-related conditions um, might be aware of Dr. Claire Weeks's work. Um, it is quite prominent nowadays, and um, certainly at the time she fought against some huge barriers to being heard and respected by her colleagues. Um, but that is no longer the case, hopefully. And um, we're going to talk about Dr. Weeks and the book that Judith has written, The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code, The Extraordinary Life of Dr. Claire Weeks. Um, and it's out now, essentially. You can get it in any bookstore, which is fantastic. And it's um, out through Scribe Publications. And I just wanted to play a very, very brief um, clip of Claire's voice because I think it um, is really illuminating and it gives you an idea of um, her warmth and compassion, which certainly does shine through in this book, but um, I think it's just really lovely to hear her voice um, yourself and no doubt you would be able to access um these kind of recordings of Claire which really read out and and illuminate her books on anxiety. So we'll just play a little bit of this and um, we'll come back to chat with Judith. This is Dr Weeks speaking. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to talk to you personally. First, I want to say that however long you may have suffered from nervous illness, if you wish to recover, you can. The main difference between a person ill for many years and someone ill for a short time is that the one who has suffered for long has had much more time to collect disturbing memories, especially the memory of much defeat, so that he despairs so easily. But there is nothing physically altered within this person determining that because he has been ill for so long, he cannot possibly recover now. Now, that's just a tiny little clip, but I wanted to give you an idea of what Claire sounded like and her passion, really, that shines through in her audio recordings. And I welcome now Judith Hoare, the author of the book we're going to be talking about. And thank you so much, Judith, for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's lovely to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And really, this is quite an achievement, the book you've written. Um, and I've got to say, I'm not surprised that you um, are a journalist in a past life because it reads so well. Um, it's so engaging. You don't even realise that you've, you know, consumed 50 pages in a very short period of time. So <laughs> I appreciate the way that you've articulated her story as well. Oh, thank you, Amy. I'm really delighted to hear that. The whole project took me five years. Um, it was wonderfully, wonderfully absorbing. Um, a great sort of trawl through the 20th century and one in fascinating individual's life. And, of course, being a journalist, as you said, when I sat down to write it, I tried to, I, I having never read, written a book before, I'd written long-form journalism, I tried to imagine every chapter as what I would think of as a feature story. So they would sort of stand alone as little stories and then link to the next one. 
That is uh, a really fantastic idea. I think I might have to use that myself one day. <laughs> it certainly is. It's great because it, they, they are standalone, but they do, as you say, flow on really, really well. Um, and the introduction, I think, grounds the story and um, I guess primes you to understand the significance of the following chapters and why her story as it unfolds is so interesting and also so important. Um, and what seems to be a bit of a common thread here is that um, Dr. Claire Weeks, who is the subject of your book, herself experienced um, what was at the time called something like a nervous illness, um, a a nervous condition, which we now would term um, as anxiety and other related anxiety conditions like obsessive compulsive or um, phobias of a range of kinds. And certainly um, her own own kind of insight, personal insight, seems to have been a very important catalyst for her work uh, because as you highlight, she started out as a trailblazing woman scientist at the University of Sydney in the field of zoology. That's right. And that was, she, she was born in 1903 and she was getting her, she was the first woman to get a doctorate of science at Sydney University in the 1920s, I think it was 1929. So she was really, um, when she had what you would call, I mean, you could loosely call it, I don't think she called it a breakdown, but serious nervous illness. When she had that, she would have been about 25 or so, and all she'd had was sort of success at school, success at university, on a way to become getting the first doctorate, already had in Britain uh, and, and America an international reputation for her evolutionary studies. So she she was really en route to great success in, as a scholar when she herself um, she herself experienced the really horrible um, um, phenomenon of when your nerves play up badly and they played up really badly with her. Indeed, and it wasn't an unprovoked condition, was it? It kind of was a system of events or a sequence of events yes. that happened. That's that's right, and that's really important to understand, Amy, because to understand with her work is she had a phrase for this. She said when people get nervous illness, she said they have been sensitised by something. This is a very key concept. Now, she herself, that that means you're ready for your body's receiving stress in an overly um, aroused sort of way. Everybody knows that feeling from after the end of a busy day, but for people when they get really um, anxious or nervous, you know, it's really high levels of sensitisation. Now, in her case, and she thinks it's true in a lot of people's case, it often follows illness. Um, I mean, you only have to look at the experience of a woman who's had a child, the fatigue that follows to see how sensitisation can set up. Um, and in her case, she was wrongly diagnosed with TB. She would had um, some very bad attack of tonsillitis or something and in the end they decided she had TB, TB. They popped her in a sanatorium which was a horrible experience because you were sort of exiled from home, put in quarantine, isolated from people and you were surrounded by death and dying which could possibly be you in a short period of time. So that was of course added to her stress. She was told not to move, not to do anything at all. She got very run down. She was very frightened and her heart started to race. Her heart had been racing for a while. And when finally they discharged her after six months and said, look, you know, you haven't had TB at all. You've been wrongly diagnosed. She was by then terrified of herself, of her symptoms and in a high state of arousal and stress. And that's what started 
her on this. That was the initial um, impetus for the work that was to take place over 50 years later. Indeed. And um, and interestingly, she also had some quite formative experiences with the medical profession herself, which set her on a path of empathy and, as you highlight, a way to not practice medicine. That's right, because when she was discharged, she, was, um, she went to stay with a friend to recuperate, still with her heart racing, still bewildered by these, this fear that had overtaken her, fear of her own body and herself and why she was feeling so utterly terrible and stressed. And she thought maybe the friend's husband, who was a doctor, might help her. And when she woke in the middle of the night with her heart, beating and she thought she was going to take a last breath and she was dying and she called out to her friend and her friend's husband wouldn't come to see her and said I'm not going to go and see her she'll think she's worse than she is and he was actually right she wasn't dying of that heart problem or there was nothing like that it was just fear that was driving her heart but because he didn't explain this was left unexplained she had two more years of suffering where she 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 went back to university she finished her doctorate with a heart beating with this terrible feelings of anxiety she couldn't control and uh, she got on a boat to England and she arrived in England just a complete nervous wreck Mm. And can you tell us that really important moment that she cites um, which changed her perspective and flicked a switch in her and the kind of insight that she gleaned from um, this man who really, um, as soon as she mentioned her symptoms, identified what the problem was almost immediately? He did, and this is what's so fascinating and what's fascinating about context and the 20th century with anxiety because you know anxiety is not a new modern phenomenon you imagine the anxiety of being in the trenches in world war one well that was where this man when she arrived in london she was working in the top floor of the university college london on the next stage of her research into reproductive evolution in lizards and up the stairs came rushing to see her a man a scientist friend of hers who was an Australian as well who was at the time living in England he rushed up to see her she hadn't long arrived in London was a nervous wreck and she said to he said um how are you and she said I'm just terrible I can't go on and he said well what's wrong with you and she said I just I'm just I have this racing heart. I'm consumed with these feelings I can't explain. I just feel so dreadful. And he looked at her and he said, oh, well, he said, that's nothing. He said, that's, we all got that in the trenches. And she said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, bear in mind, this is a man who'd been decorated for bravery twice and um, in the dreadful, fierce battles of the Somme. And he said, um, well... In battle, your heart starts to race. That's the way, you know, of course it does. But he said when the battle was over, soldiers would find their hearts continued to race and they were still consumed by fear. And he said, um, so you just learned to... That was just a trick of the nerves and you just got on with it and forgot about it. Um, And she said, oh, you mean... At that point, she said, oh, so I've been frightening myself. And he said, exactly, and laughed. And uh, so... that she said that was the blinding insight that that she was making her own symptoms worse by being frightened of them and she said well if that's what's happening I will go to sleep every night with my heart palpitating if necessary and I will just just accept it and she said the symptoms cleared up in after two years of a racing heart and terrible invasion 
invading feelings of anxiety, she said she was almost immediately fixed by this simple explanation. Indeed, and um, it's important to point out that she had seen one of the top cardiologists to rule out a kind of underlying clear biological cause that could be discovered through the testing that was available at the time. So, um, you know, there are certainly a number of people who may actually have heart conditions that are sometimes, even today, particularly with women, um, put down to anxiety. So it also can um, sometimes be interpreted in the wrong way in the other direction too. That's actually really a very important point, Amy, and I'm terribly glad you mentioned that because, Mm. um, um, for example, and, and Claire Weeks finally training as a medical doctor herself would be the first to say, go to your doctor and rule out any underlying conditions. Absolutely. And of course, one of the really um, treacherous organs in the body is the thyroid, which can mimic nervous disorders and it can cause your heart to race if you're hyper. So it absolutely is critical. But once you've cleared, once you've been cleared of that, um, uh, of, of some underlying condition, it's then important, I think, to understand how powerful the mind-body connection is. And I, I feel sure lots of listeners can think of all sorts of bits of their body that can respond um, very swiftly to, can be the stomach, to stressful events or whatever, or the skin. So we all know that mind-body connection. Indeed. Um, it's really, you can't separate the body from the brain. They are uh, quite literally interconnected through neural networks. So um, as you say, they, it, it, is, it is all interrelated and that's why meditation has become such a um, big thing in the modern era and um, becoming more and more popular. Um, I'd like to just touch on some of the thinking at, at the time um, and also the approaches that were taken when Dr. Weeks was experiencing these symptoms herself um, and also then writing books about her experience and her recommendations once she um, became a medical practitioner herself, Um, it seemed as if there was a very, very backwards way of approaching mental health and that there were in very extreme circumstances people who were receiving shock therapy and were even encouraged to undertake brain surgery to rectify some of the experiences they were feeling Um, and this was often because um, it it appears that psychiatrists felt quite impotent in terms of the um, I guess talk therapy options that they had open to them and were still quite guided by the very um, misguided in many ways uh, approach of Sigmund Freud whose um, approach and language around the ego, the id, transference, penis envy um, was highly problematic, the Oedipus complex um, and perhaps in, in a number of ways has since been discredited. Well, and I'm sort of unprovable, mm. you know, that was, the, that was the extraordinary thing when you think of how dominant that thinking became underpinning psychoanalysis in the 20th century. Yes, well, this was what was so much fun about the book when you started to sit down and think, well, where did her wonderful ideas of acceptance, of accepting your symptoms, which was at the heart of her treatment, was don't fight, accept, and that's what allows the body to down-regulate itself instead of just continuing to feed the fear cycle. Um, So where did she get that insight from? And when you go back in history, you find 
in the 19th century, even Darwin wrote a book called On the Expression of Emotion in Humans and Animals. And there was a number of other scholars, William Cannon from the US, who saw this mind-body connection very clearly um, in the 19th century. But somehow... In the 20th century, um, with the, I think, well, not somehow, certainly with the help of Freud, it, that biological, that mind-body approach got derailed by just looking into the mind itself as if it was some sort of separate thing, even though Freud really clearly understood somatism or the way in which distress was expressed in the body. He, he got terribly interested in the dark, unconscious um, life of people and of his own dark unconscious life but he he took psychiatry particularly Americans were influenced by it um, down this course which was sort of the mind and dredging into the mind and looking for all of these reasons that dated back to childhood had a lot of sexual content now she just took a much more simple approach which was more I mean she was more an inheritor of the 19th century mind-body tradition and I think Amy, it's important to understand that being trained as a scientist and a doctor, she took that very practical approach to the mind and the body. She wasn't trained as a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so she didn't um, benefit or, or, or the opposite from that sort of training. So I think when she sort of wrote her first book at the age of 57, um, in 59, 59, which was published in 1962, they were very um, thoughtful, scholarly, but simply written books for the general public about the mind-body connection. That was so fresh for people because, and so simple to understand the way in which the body became and mind became engaged in this terrible dissonant symphony of nervous illness. And the simple way she tried to suggest people could steady themselves and settle down if you like and that was so different to this lying on a couch for week in week out paying lots of money and then possibly really only adding as she would say she'd find people whose little burden of guilt had been exacerbated and increased by by psychoanalysis so it had obviously not been working perfectly that approach. Yes, indeed. And she really did make her work and um, her thoughts highly accessible to the general public. And obviously, you can't duplicate Dr. Claire Weeks um, quite literally, but you can uh, create books and audio and give talks and um, even as she did, offer herself over the phone to people who lived in other countries um, to further I guess, promote this idea, this very pragmatic approach that she used on herself and, and knew worked for her. Um, what really drove her as a medical doctor and a scientist to utilise um, these popular forms of communication, including the media as well as uh, publications, instead of writing a, a journal article or trying to influence her uh, medical colleagues or psychiatric um, doctors and professionals, uh, which you know didn't really seem to be all that receptive, at least in the in the, her, the psychology and psychiatric fields. Look, that's a really good question, and she makes the point herself. 
um, that she could have gone to. She was a scholar. She'd published lots of scholarly papers. She had a doctorate in science. Um, she'd won a Rockefeller scholarship. She'd then got her medical degree. And she could have directed it to a, a serious professional community. But when she became a doctor later in life, in midlife, and she graduated in 1945, and she became a general practitioner and then a specialist, she said the need was so great. She just discovered this ocean of need in the community for people to explain their bewildering, terrible symptoms. The, the symptoms of high anxiety are really distressing. And she said the ocean of need was so great, she, she felt she had to go direct to the people. But also, um, I think, too, it's important to point out that it was when she was treating people in her surgery that one of them said, Dr Weeks, I feel it's really, when I'm with you and you're talking to me, I really feel better and I understand what you're saying. It's very clear. But when I go away, I find it hard to hold on to those ideas. Could you please write it down for me? So she started to make little recordings of her consultations with patients that they found incredibly helpful. And it's, uh, you know, in all of the time I've been trying to contemplate what was it that made her so effective there I've dis discovered there's lots of different things that are all boiled into this wonderful mix but one of the things that made her so successful was that you could return to those books or those tapes you know when you were distressed again or if you forgot and you couldn't hold on to the ideas that she's talking about or her really clear explanations of the really simple things that lie behind high anxiety that are not dark and that everyone gets so worried about and thinks are such dark places that Freud almost encouraged that view. She said, look, this is just, you know, your body, this is just stress, these terrifying thoughts you have. If people have phobias, for example, which she didn't have, but if you do, they're, they're just thoughts. They're the thoughts of a tired mind. So all of those explanations of how these things happen, why they happened, how you felt and how to deal with them, you could go back and refer to that when you had your little tape recording. And later, that's why she realised that was so effective that perhaps books would be even better and then there was the challenge was how do you Claire Weeks on a tape recording or in the surgery is very convincing she's got the authority of a doctor behind her she's got her own personal you know charisma whatever that is and marvelous connection with you as an individual it's possibly very helpful therapeutically and very therapeutic yes but can you do that in a book and she could yeah, it is a very conversational book. I um I actually accessed it online to see what her writing style was like and it, it is like she's directly speaking with you in a very um empathetic and yet authoritative way. Um and it seems like she's also trying to encourage people to not lose hope and to realize that there is most certainly um a practical simple but not easy way of approaching some of the issues they might be facing in their lives and that they're, you know, they're not, um, I guess, disordered for having those problems. Like she was saying, it's quite um, a common thing for people to experience. Well, look, I think it is hugely common and as, you know, we know everyone's felt a little bit of stress in their life, even the most relaxed person, but, you know, it can get really out of hand for a surprisingly large number of people can suffer from high anxiety. And yes, it 
she had this wonderful way of talking directly to you. She wrote in the first person, you know, I am sitting you, I am sitting beside you as if, you know, you'll be reading me as if I'm sitting beside you. And she spoke directly to the person that picked it up. And also I think, Amy, that people, because she'd seen so many patients, she'd seen every trick of the nerves, as she would say, she could tell them how disordered their thoughts felt or how their body was misbehaving or what they feared might happen now. She understood every trick. She'd seen it in the surgery. She made a lifetime specialty of helping people because she was so passionate that she had not been helped with mm. by doctors, that she was going to make a difference. So I think that a number of factors meant those books were effective. Firstly, she talked directly to people. Secondly, she could they could see she knew what they were going through. They they went, but nobody understands, but you do. So that gave her huge credibility. And then she offered something that doesn't happen to people when they walk into a psychiatrist or probably even a psychologist. She offered hope. She said, that's okay, you can be cured. Now, this could sound like snake oil or, you know, some sort of cultish thing, but actually it came from a very deep experience and belief in her simple approach to the mind-body connection and how you could reorder that yourself. Now, as you quite rightly pointed out, it's simple for some people, actually, but it's not simple for everybody. It, sometimes it's not easy at all and it takes practice. Thus, the utility of those little books, people can practice and go back. But she offered these things that weren't available elsewhere, hope being built on this enormously credible scholarship. Indeed. And she wrote um, her first book, Self-Help for Your Nerves, in 1962. And, um, you know, the, she had a number of books since then and there were various iterations of that title in different countries. But it seems like she did get a, a very big following um, and that people did sit kind of develop a personal connection with Claire and um, and even today when I was kind of searching on forums to look at what kind of things people have written about her work there are a number of people who say that to this day um, they've only just stumbled across her work that um, her book has completely changed their lives and it seems like there's almost a cult following around Dr Claire Weeks that many people may not be aware of and certainly not Australian society. Yes, Amy, and, and you know, you, you've clearly got quite a good understanding of her and her work. And the, I, I think there is this huge following. I think, you know, the thing I'm cautious about is it, cult is a sort of funny word. She was a scientist, so she would probably feel uncomfortable with that. But I know what you mean. It's mm. really, I think, because it's, she offers people something really practical and based on the science and based on... On, on something that, that can be easily understood and grasped. And it's really quite simple and it takes away all that, as I say, the darkness. But it is remarkable how many people to this day, when they find her, she still helps people. And uh, I've had this lovely experience of having written um, my book in the same, um, literally at the same time as um, the wonderful musician Claire Bowditch has written her memoirs and we've had an interchange because I, my book was published about Claire Weeks and Claire, um, her book has just been published and guess who she's dedicated her book to? <laughs> no way. 
Claire yeah, Weeks. Dr. Dr. Claire Weeks. Wow. So the brand legacy. So, you know, and when I got in touch with, we got in touch with each other mm. and uh, she calls it the Weeks and she said she saved my life, you know. Now, that's a very contemporary example of the, and this sort of thing, of course, Dr. Weeks herself got used to traveling the world and having people just individuals and their families just saying, thank you, you saved my life, my sister's life, my husband's life, because um, it certainly wasn't all women. Um, I'm a pilot, you got me back in the air. I mean, she became almost, she became so used to that experience. And what she missed out on, of course, was the um, professional regard. But she, this extraordinary, long, wonderful global footprint remains to this day, but it's invisible but connected with all of these people you're reading about online and little examples like Claire Bowditch that I tripped across just as I'm writing the book. That is just fascinating and so surprising to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking with Judith Hoare, who's the author of the book The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code, The Extraordinary Life of Dr. Claire Weeks. Um, Yeah, I was interested that your introduction is actually titled The Uncommon Sense of Claire Weeks. So we also have some overlap because this show is called Uncommon (laughs) Sense. (laughs) Maybe that's why I relate to her approach so well. Um, That's right. Yeah, but I... I'm also interested in the people who actually did at the time pick up on her work and recognise the value of it and then utilise it in their own practices and then even how her, um, I guess, methodology and approach is used today and how it might have evolved over time. Could you share with us um, how what her impact and influence has been? Yes, well, I think she was picked up to begin with in america there was a a phobia an anxiety and phobia clinic in new york in white plains and dr manuel zane who ran that was the first phobia and anxiety clinic set up attached to a hospital in the u.s in the early 70s and he noticed all his patients were grasping her book and saying how much it had helped them very very troubled people who'd had serious agoraphobia suddenly were getting better after reading her book so he was the first doctor in America to see she had something special and he tried to introduce his colleagues to her but you know she was in a way she didn't take prisoners herself she she knew she worked she'd seen how she worked and she'd seen how they didn't work so when she addressed them I think she basically didn't pay any attention or respect possibly to their approach was standing up there saying this is how it's I do it and this is what works. And so a lot of the professionals who are in, in, immersed in psychoanalytic Freudian approaches just rejected her. But Dr. Zane didn't and a number of other really disillusioned psychiatrists who'd been struggling to, to get their patients better over years and who were professional enough to see that what they had learned at university and what they were practicing in their surgeries wasn't working. And a number of them in America changed their approach and picked up on hers. Now, not all of them by any means. There wasn't a professional takeover, but some did. And in, the, and in England, her work started to become recognised there professionally. But, you know, because she wasn't a trained psychiatrist or a psychologist, she's ended up a footnote in history. But if you tap into some of the thinkers today, like Dr. David Barlow, who's you know regarded as the preeminent expert on anxiety in America, he's in his 80s now, but he will say she changed the lives of tens of millions of people for the better with her very astute ideas that really what is happening to people, the problem is not outside them, it's not that phobia or 
the, the, the thing they're worried about. The problem is inside them. It's the fear of the fear. And that, that brilliant insight that it's what's inside you, that you're frightened of yourself, that you're frightening yourself, that it's not fear of the agra, the out the marketplace that keeps a person inside, it's fear of those feelings. So she was the first to identify that, but she's really been footnoted in history. And yet today, acceptance theories and the whole idea of getting back to the body, even getting back to diet, exercise, all those things represent a recognition that the body and the mind are intimately interconnected. Um, And that was something she understood years and years ago. Yes, it seems to me almost that her background as a scientist who approached things from a very observational and analytical perspective really gave her the edge over a number of other um, people who, although they are trained in science, doctors are, it seems like um, her her looking at other species and animals might have given her more of a, um, I guess, different perspective on science and behaviour and the way the body and mind works. I think that's really true, Amy. And she started off looking at lizards and she was studying evolution under the ideas of Darwin in the 20s. And, of course, every living creature has fight or flight. So the first thing she understood was that we all have this innate alarm that some people rather probably wrongly call fear, but it's the feeling you get if a tiger runs at you or a brick falls from the sky. You you don't control that feeling. She... You, you, you don't control your reaction to that, at least. You, you, you immediately run from a tiger or, 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 or you fight if fighting is the suitable response to survival, I suppose, in warfare or whatever. She understood that. But then she then over the years, as you say, that observation of lizards, which she did, she cut them up, she dissected them, she studied placental evolution. She brought that really attentive observational scientific approach to people in her um, in her surgery and she noticed the way and she'd seen it in herself how she responded to fear and she noticed the different ways in which fear could present and the way in which people would then become sensitized by sickness or a worry terrible worry they'd had maybe a guilt or a disgrace or a problem or a breakup whatever they'd become sensitized and then their body would start misbehaving they'd get these bodily symptoms and then then they become frightened of the feeling of fear of the sudden surge of fear that they would get quite inappropriately from stress so that terrible automatic first fear that you get when you see a tiger suddenly oversensitized people would get that in a I don't know a supermarket cure something they'd get this surge of adrenaline this horrible surge of panic and they think why did I get that and they probably got it because they'd been very stressed and and very run down from something or another and then they'd think oh no what happens if that happens again that horrible feeling and that's the beginning of the panic cycle they start to get frightened of their own feelings and unable to sit with their own feelings Um, and she pointed out that they can't get any worse once you understand you've got limited your adrenaline creating nerves are limited she had all sorts of really good explanations for how you could limit the feeling but All of this, as you rightly say, was based on observing people really closely, how they reacted and broadening her own personal understanding of stress with the backup of medical science and the backup of science and the backup of keen observation. And I think when we talk about psychoanalysis and psychiatry being scientific, I sometimes wonder indeed how scientific it in fact was.
<laughs> I couldn't agree more. And um, I really do think that's an excellent place to finish, to be honest. Um, it's a great point. And I really do appreciate the fact that you have taken her out of her footnote status and created an entire book dedicated to her. And I can't all but hope that this will create more interest in her work and also to reflect on the woman herself and her beautiful and fantastic um, intelligence and passion and qualities that make her a real trailblazer in medicine, in science, um, in Australia and the world. And um, it's great to, uh, to see and get to know this wonderful figure from history. So thank you so much, Judith, for giving us your time and um, sharing your passion as well on this subject and um, the person, Dr. Claire Weeks. And thank you, Amy, for taking the keen, keen trouble you clearly have to understand her. So I also really appreciate that and thank you for having me. Oh, thank you, Judith. It is a real pleasure. So I really um, hope that people can pick up this book. It's called The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code, The Extraordinary Life of Dr. Claire Weeks. And it's written by Judith Hoare, who I've just been speaking with. Thank you, Judith. If this conversation has brought up any questions, issues or concerns for you, feel free to contact your medical practitioner or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.